Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Can We Pause It? I'm your host, Ty McCarthy, and this is the podcast where we watch movies just to press the pause button and try to figure out what we just watched. Not only the what, but the why behind the what of what we just watched. And I am so happy that this is actually happening. This has been in the works for such a long time now, and it is finally launching, and I am beyond excited. But before we begin, I just want to give some background on what you can expect and sort of why I'm doing this um, in the first place. Like I said, this has been an idea that I've had for such a long time, for a couple years now, and it's just been ping-ponging back and forth on the sides of my head. And I spent a lot of 2020 just fine-tuning and refining it and ultimately recorded an episode and was about to upload it. And then I had this major light bulb moment and that shifted everything onto this new path and i was like oh man so i'm back in the research woods and now i think on the other end of things i think this is a better path to follow and i i think it's going to be great and just a quick note to anyone out there thinking about doing anything creative do it just go full on nike and just do it the biggest factor keeping me from doing this was myself I was in my head about the whole thing, and I was like, if it can't be perfect the first time, then it's not worth doing, and kept thinking a million different what-ifs, like what if no one listens to it, or what if it's not, quote, professional, and basically all those what-ifs kept me from even attempting it, and I spent way too much time trying to perfect the small little stuff, and I was missing the bigger picture of just creating. One of the things that helped clear my head and get out of this creativity roadblock I was having came from a very unlikely place. So I was cleaning my room on a Saturday afternoon, listening to the original cast recording of Company, and I had one of those moments where, like, when you're walking past a building that you've seen every day on your way to work, and suddenly you notice, like, a new detail of the architecture, and it sort of, like, hits you, and you're like, has that detail been there this whole time? And suddenly the building looks like a brand new building. Well, I've heard this album thousands of times, but all of a sudden a line really jumped out at me near the 11 o'clock number, and it slapped me so hard. Suddenly, I was hearing it all for the first time. And it's uh, if you're not familiar with Company, it's just before the rousing anthem near the end. The main character is turning 35, and his friends are offering encouragement, saying, um, saying one-liners to him. And one says, Don't be afraid that it won't be perfect. The only thing to be afraid of is that it won't be Oh, now if that wasn't exactly what I was doing, I don't know what was. I was letting the fear of imperfection and the fear of perceived future failure sabotage me from even getting off the ground. Like that one line helped rearrange my whole mindset and quiet my inner saboteur. And now I'm just going to have fun with it. And as long as I'm having fun with this, I'm going to keep doing it. So we'll see what works. We'll see what doesn't work. And obviously there's a learning curve. But we will keep our options open and we can discover together uh, what this podcast can be. And so in the broadest sense, this is just an extension of what I was doing with my movie review blog. Um, And moving things over to a podcast means I can worry less about spelling and grammar and more about research and analysis, the things that I really, really like. So essentially, we're going to explore the nuts and bolts of storytelling. We're going to see if we can find out what makes a good movie good and what are the things that those stories tell us about ourselves? There are a bunch of great movie podcasts already out there, 
but they kind of treat each movie as an isolated event uh, when they review them. And I want this to be sort of part history lesson and part movie making 101. Because if you're like me, you learned the rules of football by watching a lot of football, rather than being given an NFL rulebook when you're five. So the same thing's going on here. Movies have their own shorthand or, or movie language, and we often don't realize that the movie language is happening when we sit down to watch a movie. So I want this podcast to help people better understand the stories that movies tell and the movie language that's taking place in front of them, and put those things in a larger historical context so we can see where we've been and where we are and possibly where we're going. And there are so many different ways that we tell stories as humanity. So I wanted to focus on movies because they're so personal to us. Like they're almost members of our family. Every once in a while, I may jump over into like other disciplines um, and show off music, art, musical theater, and dare I say flag design, uh, but who knows. But all of those elements are sort of already wrapped up in the movie going experience. So I wanna start there. Our lives center around stories as much today as they did for our ancestors who told stories hundreds of thousands of years ago by the campfire. The amount of stories there are has only increased since the days of early cave paintings that told the story of a hunt in Let's Go France. With new content being available daily for us to consume, I'm wanting this to be a place where we pause and zoom in on certain stories and storytelling elements and see what it is about this piece or this movement or that action that make a story so magical and maybe along the way find a buried hidden gem in the mountains of content that we've probably forgotten about. And we won't shy away from looking in the mirror. After all, when movies are at their finest, they can hold up a celluloid mirror to a society. And as we gaze into that mirror, we see the totality of the human condition reflected back to us, both the good, the bad, and the ugly. So we're going to be able to explore it all. If you love movies like I do, I think you're going to like this podcast. If you've ever, even for a moment, thought, maybe... Just maybe this umbrella could make me fly, or wanted to go back in time, or you couldn't sleep for a week because you watched Ernest Scared Stupid when you were four with your cousins, then this is a place for you. So like I said, this is a fun project of mine, and we're going to see how it goes. As long as I'm having fun with it, it'll continue. It could be two episodes, it could be 200. But at any rate, I'm excited to see where this goes, and let's get things started. And today we're going to pause on some of the mile markers along the road that helped established movies to become a thing. Act 1, the prequel. With 2021 in the rearview mirror, we're now stretching our legs out and venturing back into the world again, staying cautious to dodge any new variants that might pop up. And part of that venturing out process means going back into a large, dark room with hundreds of strangers, sitting in silence for about 90 minutes, all while we eat a mass-produced snack from a cob-based plant. The pandemic was, insert overused adjective here, to say the least. <laughs> because of that, we are going to see the next chapter of the movie-going experience firsthand. Because movie theaters are competing more directly with at-home streaming services. We are sitting on the precipice of a new paradigm. And when you're in that kind of epoch, I always find it helpful to look back to see just how we got here. And this is where the history nerd in me really comes out to shine because I love, love, love finding these obscure side notes of history. And any one of those could be a movie in and of themselves. But before we do that, I want to take a minute to do this short little mindfulness exercise to unlock any memories from our childhood related to movies. So if you're able to, and if not, you know, do this at home right before bed or something, um, close your eyes and take in a couple deep breaths. Just I'll count you off. Hold it. 
One, two, three, and exhale. And breathe in again. One, two, three, slow on the exhale. And while keeping your eyes closed and returning to your normal breathing pattern, let's think of these questions. So going way back into your memories, way before the pandemic, what was the last movie you saw in a theater? Was it The Invisible Man, which was in theaters in January of 2020? Um, what was that last movie you saw in a movie theater? I'll take another deep breath. Inhale and exhale, going back further. What was the last movie you rented on DVD or VHS? Was it from a red box? Was it from a blockbuster? Another deep breath. Exhale slowly. Do you remember the first movie you saw in a theater? Keeping your eyes closed. I'm going to see if some of these things uh, can trigger some sensory memory for you. What was the occasion for that first movie? Was it a birthday party? Was it a special family weekend? Or was it just an ordinary event? Were you with your older brother or an older sibling? Were you with your parents, your cousins, or a group of friends in junior high? Was the theater a standalone building? Or was it inside a mall? What did the theater smell like? What did the lobby look like? What did the floor of the theater feel like? What type of seats were there? Did they fold up after you stood up or were they big recliners with a cup holder and the armrest? Were you on time or were you running late and missed all the trailers? Okay, now you can open your eyes. That was fun, right? So hopefully that didn't inadvertently bring up any like hidden childhood trauma about movies. And hopefully that will help illustrate just how far the movie-going experience has gone just within your lifetime. And for me, my first movie-going experience that I remember was at the Glenwood Theater in Overland Park, Kansas. And if you grew up in Kansas City, you may be familiar with the Glenwood. It was close to 91st and Metcalf in Overland Park, and it opened in 1966, and it was billed as Kansas City's premier luxury theater. And true to the year that it opened, the building was space-age modern, almost googy architectural in its features. Uh, it had this like grand lobby with this huge chandelier uh, that sat above the ticket booth. And it had like these space-age pointed arches um, all around to make it feel like a, like a Jetson sort of rotunda. And that uh, huge chandelier was actually recently just found, and they're in the process right now of restoring it. The sign outside was also iconic. It had these two oversized pointed arches with an old English script G under the left arch and this awesome starburst sort of sphere in the other. And the starburst had like these rods that like that uh, stuck out of it and they would twinkle at night. It was it was awesome. And I'll never forget sitting in the front row of the Glenwood as we watched this double feature of Angels in the Outfield followed by the Kansas City premiere of The Lion King. And it was amazing. The pastel-colored footlights uh, shot up on the sides of the theater, and this place had 601 seats, 
So this place was huge. And before the show, this massive screen was hidden by this massive curtain that would just dramatically opened as the lights dim and it started going. It was a sight to behold in and of itself. Unbeknownst to me at the time, forces were already in motion that were going to negatively impact the Glenwood. And just a few short years after the premiere of The Lion King, the Glenwood would close its doors for good. Changing taste for audiences, the rise of the multiplex theater, which offered bigger screens, stadium seating, digital protection, and more concession stand options all contributed to its downfall. Even the built environment itself played a factor in the Glenwood's demise. Its style of architecture, modernism, was giving away to postmodernism, and the futuristic Jetsons aesthetic of the Glenwood was just not in fashion, and by the turn of the century, it was seen as outdated and passe. The Glenwood Theater closed in 2000, after 34 years of service, and in November of that same year, would be torn down and razed to make room for the first Whole Foods in Kansas City, which, ironically, isn't around anymore either. It was demolished in 2021. And I feel like if the Glenwood could have just held out just a little bit longer, even if it had been vacant for a few years, it could have survived that 40-year slump of architecture and been cool again and been the sort of retro-chic kind of theater. Act 2. Look at this moving photograph. We spent the majority of the pandemic watching movies from our couches. But even before the pandemic, it was already routine for us to come home after work, crash on the sofa, binge watch The Office which is kind of weird if you think about it because it's a show about being at work. And you probably already have four to five streaming services on your TV right now. And, well, <laughs> if we're actually honest, it's probably that you've collected four to five passwords from several roommates ago. But if you think back, back 10 years ago in like 2012, 2011, the majority of Netflix users were using its DVD service and Netflix had just started to dip its toe into creating original content. It all has to start somewhere. Even the Glenwood itself was building upon what came before it. So how far back do we need to go to find this singularity moment or the Big Bang moment for movies? If you think about it, movies trace their origins back to the first time a story was told. I know that sounds super cheesy and mundane, but it's true. Our imaginations link together ideas, concepts, abstractions, and symbols and put them together in a form our minds can understand. So what are movies, if not dreams, preserving? From the first oral histories humans told each other about hunts or great monsters in the woods, we've got a lot of practice at telling stories. The next big jump in storytelling came with the written word. It was the Sumerians who first put pen to page. Well, stylus to cutiform tablet, I should say, in around 3200 BC. And not too long after that, in the 5th century BC, the Greeks were adapting stories for mass audiences in their dramatic and comedic plays. Movies are just the latest way we pass along shared stories. Iconic, legendary, and culturally significant movies like Crossroads, Norbit, and Glitter would not have been possible without Gilgamesh first being written down on cutiform. The principles behind motion pictures have deep historical roots too. The first mile marker we're going to look at on the road to movies is the camera obscura. Camera obscuras reflect light hitting an object through a pinhole and project a reversed version of that object with no electricity needed. They mimic how our eyes work, only camera obscuras don't have a brain to flip the image back upright. If you want to see one in action, I recommend taking a hike up to see the camera obscura at the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles. Pro tip, if you time it, you can arrive just before sunset and mwah! Spectacular. Beautiful views of downtown Los Angeles, the Hollywood sign, and it's a great place to learn something new about our solar system. While camera obscuras have the ability to project an image, 
they don't really record it and it's not really moving. For getting images recorded, we need to leave ancient times and enter the Enlightenment to find the first photographs. A single frame of a movie is literally just a photograph. Movies are the natural extension of their parent technology of photography. So what are movies if not photography preserving? The first movies, and I use that term liberally, were literally just still pictures strung together. Okay, and I need to pause here and go on a little side quest for a second about language. Is it a film? Is it a movie? Is there a difference? To this armchair movie critic, not really. Some people draw a hard and fast line in the sand about the terms, but yes, there is a difference, but no, there's not. So I'm going to use them interchangeably here because they're more or less synonyms of each other. Some folks like to differentiate the usage, like things literally recorded onto film are films. For others, it's projects that are more on the artsy side of things, whereas a movie is more of the commercially driven project. Is an art house movie still a film if it's digitally recorded? Does it mean I'm kind of uncouth for not properly defining them and using them incorrectly? Sure. With that out of the way, I guess I should say the first films were just literally moving pictures. A string of still photographs that when cycled through gave the illusion of movement. And essentially, 200 years later, that's still what's going on. So if you've ever drawn a stick person jumping off a cliff on a pad of post-its, well, each individual post-it is like pausing on one frame of a movie. Flip through 12 of those, or frames, and you have one second of a movie. It's a bit rudimentary, but it's motion, and congrats, you just made a movie. The frame rate, aka the illusion of movement, is linked to the rate our eye can absorb and process what we're seeing. And 16 to 12 frames per second is kind of on the lower end, but it's still smooth motion. Back in the day, these were literal frames cut and spliced together to form a full movie. So a 90 minute movie with a standard 24 frame per second rate gives you a whopping 129,600 frames. That's a lot of frames to look at in the editing room. During the 1800s, several different methods were developed to capture an image and preserve it. Each method has its own fascinating history, and I wish I could go into them more, but I won't. <laughs> but you can learn more about them on the podcast, Can We Get a Selfie? From the 1820s onward, photography began making bigger technological leaps forward, and one small leap just so happened to be a giant gallop for movie kind, and that would be 1878's The Horse in Motion by Edward Moybridge. It consists of 12 stills of a horse going through a full cycle of a gallop. Contrary to popular myth, though, it had more to do with studying how a horse gallops to win races rather than an around-the-world-in-80-days sort of gentleman's wager to prove someone wrong. It was one second, but it's a movie, and likely the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparent of all motion picture. Now, we need to pause on Moybridge for a sec. This little wager might have unknowingly ushered in the movie age, but the inventor of movies is more of a cautionary tale than an exemplar to be emulated. So he gets married at 41 to a woman who's 20 years younger than him, Flora Stone, and they didn't really have much in common. Like, she wanted to go out to the theater, and he would stay home and read books alone. So she begins to have an affair with a good friend of his, Harry Larkins, and when Edward finds out, he is livid and he sends his wife away to live with relatives in Northern California. But Harry still finds her, and Edward finds out that the affair is still continuing, and so he goes up there and tells Harry, I have a message for you from my wife, then shoots and kills Harry. So Edward is arrested for murder, and he's on trial, but he could not be bothered, and he says publicly it was interfering with his camera research. And also luckily for him, he had some pretty well-connected and wealthy friends, like he was besties with the president of Stanford University. 
and ultimately was found not guilty. But prior to the murder, Flora had given birth to a son, Flornando, but Edward was convinced it wasn't his because of the affair. And shortly after the trial, Flora dies suddenly, leaving Flornando in Edward's care. But Edward doesn't want anything to do with his kid and sends him away to live in a Protestant orphanage. Imagine being the only kid at the orphanage that actually has a parent and like knows that they have a parent, not like a little orphan Annie situation. That kid is definitely going to need some therapy later on in life. I mean, we all will, but like definitely him. And good thing for us, Moybridge wasn't the only person developing film. Every year brought more and more advances in film technology and techniques. In the 1880s and 1890s, actuality films, or proto-documentaries, showed everyday life, and they were becoming more and more popular. These one- to two-minute clips showed people boarding a train or a busy intersection of the city, that sort of thing. Today we might call these actuality films home movies. There was no real narrative, but it was definitely an important step for the growing popularity of this new emerging technology. Another mile marker on the road to the first true movie is 1896's The Kiss by Thomas Edison. This was 18 seconds of the final scene of a popular play at the time called The Widow Jones. Here we see a handlebarred mustached gentleman talking cheek to cheek with a woman in a Victorian era poofy sleeved dress. After some inaudible dialogue, the two share a quick smooch on the cheek. The Kiss was an extremely popular film. It holds a place of particular importance because it was one of the first examples people used to call for censorship in Hollywood, claiming The Kiss was far too scandalous for Victorian audiences. However, Film historians have pointed out that folks who watched the film were very familiar with the source material, and even though they supported the Hays Code, they were sort of imagining what the Victorian area would be, rather than using primary sources to see if the kiss actually caused a moral panic. And it's also important because it is one of the oldest surviving examples of a screen adaptation. Now, 18 seconds does not a feature film make, and that term, feature film, has sort of melted into our vocabulary, sort of like film and movie have. It originally was to differentiate itself as the headliner act from the opening acts that ran before it. Today, it generally means a film that is 90 minutes long, but there really isn't consensus about how long a film should be versus a short film versus a full-length film. The Academy and the British Film Institute define a, a feature-length film as 40-plus minutes, but the Screen Actors Guild sets the bar at 75. And fun fact, 1955's Marty is the shortest film to win Best Picture, ending right at the 90-minute mark. By the turn of the century, movies went from being a sideshow attraction at the Chicago's World's Fair in 1893 to a Main Street staple in 1905. The honor of World's first true feature-length film goes to 1906's The Story of the Kelly Gang from Melbourne, Australia. Coming in at 60 minutes, it was notable because it was the first multi-reel projection and it was the longest narrative movie to date. Some boxing matches had been filmed that were a lot longer, but they weren't narrative, so Kelly Gang gets the win. This movie also made advances in costume design. It used authentic period costuming too. It was also one of the first biopics to depict real events that happened in 1879 Australia. Probably the first film to have a sympathetic villain or anti-hero, as the Kelly Gang in real life were not exactly saints. 1917's The Gulf Between was the first movie in Technicolor, and ten years later, movies would evolve yet again to include talking pictures with 1927's The Jazz Singer. And a mere 52 years after The Horse in Motion, a group of industry folks had gathered to honor the best and brightest in their field at the first Academy Awards in Hollywood movies had officially become a thing. 
Act three, the cinema. Now that we know the origin story for films, what about the places in which they are consumed? And that answer is a bit more straightforward. As I mentioned before, the Greeks have been performing live theater for the masses since 500 BC, and buildings to accommodate large audiences have evolved ever since. Live theater has its own fascinating history that you can find out more about on the podcast. Can we take it from the top, this time with feeling? Again, we need to pause for some nomenclature. Is it a theater or the cinema? Well, it depends on where you live. In America, we generally use the word theater to describe a live performance venue and differentiate the two by adding the word movie to the front, whereas Yale Brits solve the problem by just calling the two places two different words. As the popularity of movies increased, the infrastructure was already there for them to be shown. Vaudeville theater owners were some of the first to make the transition. Already known for their risque performances, vaudeville theaters used the new medium of movies to keep the seats filled and incorporated them into their variety show routines. As films became longer, theater owners needed things to entice audiences to make their stay more enjoyable and so that people would feel like they're getting their money's worth and would in turn, you know, tell their friends to come. And all these comforts that we take for granted today, we sort of forget at some point were novel and a first. Like New York City's Rivoli Theater in 1925, was the first theater to use air conditioning to attract guests off the hot New York streets in the summer. Another feature we take for granted today, but was novel at one point, was the purchasing of food and drinks. And although it's been around since 47,000 BC, it took until the 1930s for it really to pop in popularity. And of course, by that, I'm talking about popcorn. Movies have been vehicles to bring synergy between itself and other emerging technologies, one of those being vehicles. The automobile, or horseless carriage for nasty, began picking up steam, and then oil, in the first part of the 20th century. By the 1930s, cars were also a thing and here to stay, so naturally a drive-in theater was soon to follow. The first drive-ins were found in New Jersey in 1933, and they peaked in popularity around the 1960s, as America was lousy with cash after the Second World War. But since the 1960s, they've declined in popularity, and their surviving ones have been a bit of a novelty. That is until 2020. With the world needing to be spaced out six feet apart, what better way to stay in your bubble than in the bubble of your very own Kia Sorento? Kia, moments that inspire. As the world begins to return to 2019 levels of operation, it'll be interesting to watch drive-ins to see if they can maintain their popularity, or will they just move back to novelty status, a relic of a bygone era only to be rolled out during the next global pandemic. We will just have to wait and see. As I mentioned before with the Glenwood, the buildings themselves are products of their time. So they also tell stories about who we are and and where we're going as a society. Architecture is a long-lasting record of humans, humanity's priorities, its goals, its creativity, and its vision for the future, or lack thereof. Converting Main Street shops into theaters quickly gave rise to a purpose-built theater. Coinciding with the economic boom of the 1920s, movie theaters of the era were super elaborate, and they told their own story. These buildings weren't homes or churches or government buildings they were they were something new they were attractions in their own right a third space that drew people and kept people by its ornate features and its immersive environments the built environment of a theater reflects social norms and aspirations as well much like the modernism and and space age aesthetic of the glenwood did in the 60s at first these theaters in the 20s were just mimicking the grand opera houses of europe and mixed in elements of the beaux art style and art deco styles of architecture the most famous of these examples being Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. It was built in 1927 in the exotic revival style, a type of architecture that makes you feel like you were transported to a distant land, but infused with a lot of Art Deco. 
The exotic revival style isn't supposed to be a one-for-one -one recreation of an actual place or building, but merely give you the impression of being there. Like how Disney's Hollywood Studios in Orlando isn't a recreation of Hollywood, but it's merely the old Hollywood we think was there. It's the Hollywood that never was and always will be, as Michael Eisner said at its dedication. Done with care, this can be a great homage to the source material. However, it can quickly and easily cross the line into cultural appropriation. And even if its intentions were good, as our culture re-examines itself, we see that sometimes it can be both at the same time. If you're a fan of old theaters, go ahead and check out Cinema Treasures on Instagram. They have a catalog of old gyms from all across the country. Some are abandoned and decaying, but others are still active and thriving. Going to the movies offered audience escapism. For 90 minutes or so, we could completely forget about our problems and escape into a new world. Escapism is a huge reason why movies have maintained their popularity throughout these, dare I say, unprecedented times. But movies themselves aren't able to tap into the escapism they've created. And what I mean by that is, they are products of the time and place that they are made. Like I said earlier, movies are mirrors that hold up a reflection of society back to us, so we get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And part of that ugliness is that movies and movie theaters have fallen to the pressures of systemic racism and prejudice just like every other aspect of our society. On the screen, minorities had very little, if any, representation. African Americans were mostly portrayed in service industry roles like a butler, a maid, a jazz band leader, a porter on a train. And not to mention all the times that white actors donned blackface as a part of a plot device like in Birth of the Nation, The Jazz Singer, or Holiday Inn. The theater building itself used the built environment to segregate audiences too. Due to Jim Crow laws throughout the United States, white patrons would sit in the lower levels while black patrons would use the balcony or have a fully separate theater in a different part of town altogether. Audiences weren't fully integrated until the signing of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. We are still seeing Hollywood reckon with its past in real time. April Rain's hashtag Oscar So White in 2015 was a pivotal moment in pushing Hollywood to be more diverse in its representation, both in front of and behind the camera. And more recently, we were seeing the fallout from the Golden Globes' lack of representation of its board of directors. In the 1950s and 60s, people were leaving the urban core of the central city for suburban satellite cities, and theaters were quick to go along with them. The economic boom in newly installed interstates made commuting a breeze. The availability of cheap land in the suburbs meant new theaters could be bigger and better than ever before, closer to the growing population centers outside the central downtown core, and they would be surrounded by a sea of parking. Enter the rise of the multiplex. Kansas City's Ward Parkway Shopping Center, located 10 miles south of downtown KC, opened with an AMC theater with one screen, then added a second screen four years later, and a couple years after that added two more, and it quickly became the first multiplex in the world. Later in 1997, AMC would go on to perfect the art of the multiplex and build, which was at the time the largest in the country, a 30-screen theater in suburban Olathe, Kansas. Now, full disclosure, I used to work for that theater, the AMC Studio 30 in Olathe, which only had 30 screens for like one year because one was a special event space and one was like a testing ground for new types of chairs, flooring, and wall colors and stuff. Um, and now it's called the AMC Dine-In Studio 28. With added space, the size of screens increased too. A huge jump was made when IMAX arrived, making its literal big screen debut. IMAX also helped popularize stadium seating. So instead of having a slowly sloping floor, each row was a few steps up from the other, which allowed for unobstructed views. This wasn't necessarily a new concept. 
the Princess Theater in Honolulu was the first to do this in 1922, but it definitely was what made it popular in the 1990s. And prior to the COVID-19 shutdowns, theaters were innovating themselves again to compete with the availability of streaming services at home. Theater chains like AMC and Alamo Drafthouse began adding full dining experiences, so no more having to wait in line in the concession stand with the peasants. With the press of a button, your food can be brought to you, and you don't even need to get up. It's like being at a resort. Everything you need to do is at a touch of a button from a reclining chair. With the world opening back up, movie theaters have a new issue to tackle. How to get audiences back into the seats. Which, for me, seems like an easy fix, because who wants to stay at home anymore? And as we return to so-called normalcy, Americans will have plenty of places to pick from their entertainment options. In 2021, there were some 12,000 movie theaters in the United States, with some 44,000 screens. Now, for perspective, there are only about 14,000 McDonald's. And in case you're worried all the screen time is bad for us, libraries in the United States still outnumber movie screens two to one. And as much as we love movies in the United States, we don't even own the title of biggest movie theater. The largest theater in the world belongs to the Canopolis in Madrid, with 25 screens and a max capacity of 9,200 patrons. Wow, that is a lot of popcorn to sweep up. And like I said, we are currently in the midst of a new paradigm shift in the way we tell our stories and the way we view those stories. Streaming services, to use a buzzword, disrupted the norms of how we absorb our stories. But with disruption comes innovation and a chance to evolve into the next thing. And if I may be so bold to make a prediction, I would say that in 50 years, we're still going to be going to the theater simply because we are social people. Movies offer a place where we can gather with our friends and our families in this third kind of place, a place that's not home or work. Movies still offer an experience that we can't get at home, a five-story screen and a seat that shakes from Dolby Digital surround sound. Just like the home coffee maker didn't kill coffee shops, I don't see a world where streaming services kill off theaters. If anyone is going to kill off an archaic industry, it's the millennials, and we have chosen in our infinite wisdom to spare movie theaters. For now. What started as a friendly wager to see if a horse really left the ground when it gallops has turned into a multi-billion dollar industry. Movies have impacts far outside the theater as well, from how we talk to one another, to what we wear, to what we listen to on the radio. My hope is that this place can be a place where we explore all those nooks and crannies and see what makes us love movies so much. Well, that is the show. Thank you so much for listening to this inaugural episode. I really, really do hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you learned something new that you might not have known before. This episode was produced and edited by myself with original theme music composed by J.D. Weinstock. Thanks for pressing pause. So until next time, let's go ahead and press play.